From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And on this episode of SVU, Matt and I review To the Bone, the new Netflix original film starring Lily Collins and coming from Unreal co creator Marty Noxon. Later in this episode, we'll bring you Q Shots, where we recommend some movies you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. Inspired by To the Bone, we were going to talk about bone movies. Bones, bone, the lovely bones, Winter's Bone, the Bone Collector, Rust and Bone, Blood and Bone. But then I realized I did not have time. I was a little busy this week. I didn't have time to watch The Mortal Instruments, colon, City of Bones. And I said to Allison, if I can't include The Mortal Instruments, colon, City of Bones in a podcast about bone movies... I don't want to do it at all. I would like nothing more than to hear you talk about Mortal Instruments, City of Bones. All right, maybe we should throw that on the uh, the listener's choice for our next episode. In the meantime, instead, Because To The Bone is a film by an artist who is associated with television, that's what we're going to discuss, movies from TV creators. But first, let's do Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies On Demand on cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. Allison, it's your turn to give us some picks. What have you got for us? Well, first up is the movie that you mentioned uh, at the top of the show, Colossal, from Nacho Vigalondo, a filmmaker that we both have enjoyed a lot, both in his filmmaking work and his karaoke stylings. <laughs> um, this is his biggest film to date. It is an homage to the kaiju genre, but also a movie about basically like white resentment, I would say. I feel like that's pretty accurate. It's about two characters who uh, are both not where they thought they would be in their 30s, played by Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis, and the ways in which their very kind of mundane uh, resentments and troubles with addiction and general uh, feelings of being lost converge with a giant monster that occasionally shows up and attacks soul. I think is a, is is a pretty clever thing. I, I think it's very well done. I know I like this movie more than you do, Matt. Yes. Uh, but I, I think that it is a both a very kind of like loving and knowledgeable homage to this genre and a, and a kind of a surprisingly interesting dramedy. So that is available on demand as of August 1st. So probably by the time you're listening to this. Also on demand on August 1st. Uh, the movie that probably has the best, uh, one of the best collections of talent involved, and yet didn't work at all. The uh, mysteriously, uh, mysterious, I wouldn't call it a disaster, but an interesting mysterious failure. The Circle. Uh, uh-huh. This would be the film directed by James Ponsalt, who is mm-hmm. like a, you know, a good director yeah. and like a critical favorite yeah. based on the uh, book by Dave Eggers, which got a lot of acclaim mm-hmm. about a young woman who goes to work for a company that is sort of like Google meets Facebook. This like social com- media company that uh, becomes increasingly powerful cast that includes Emma Watson, Tom Hanks, John Boyega, and yet... Uh, this movie was just kind of slipped into theaters for a reason. Uh, what was I, the reason? It's not good. Oh, okay. But it is a, an interesting failure, I uh. think, as as a movie trying to be about as timely as possible and both like a kind of dystopian movie and one that gives you a bit of hope at the end. Uh, it aims very high, and I, I think maybe uh, its, it's uh, reach exceeds its grasp, let's say. 
And finally, available on demand on August 4th is a movie I've not seen, but is part of a trend that, honestly, I'm not opposed to. That would be Fun Mom Dinner, uh, which is the latest movie to be about slightly naughty evenings out <laughs> or adventures with moms. Um, but I got, uh, in no addition fewer to, than three, no more than five. Right. In addition to bad moms, I got something yes. called like, I think it was like The Bad Mother recently and mm-hmm. emails about that. They're making a Bad Mom sequel. Bad Mom sequel. And now we have Fun Mom Dinner. Mm. Uh, this one has a particularly good cast that includes, among others, Katie Asselton and Tony Collette. Mm. I think it played at Sundance. It's about four moms who have nothing in common beyond their kids being in the same preschool class and get together for a dinner and, of course, hijinks hijinks ensue. Fun ensues. Yes, so that is available on demand on August 4th. All right, ready? 280 for the pork, 350 for the buttered noodles, 150 for the roll, and 75 for butter. It's like you have calorie Asperger's. That's not breakfast. Neither is coffee. You do a lot of sit-ups. I'm not going to treat you if you aren't interested in living. Good speech. I've got it under control. Isn't it funny? He's a cake. I've got it under control. I've got it under control. On every episode of Film Spotting SVU, our main review is chosen by listeners through a poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. On SVU number 142, we gave you the following options. To the Bone, a drama about a young woman struggling with an eating disorder. Miss Sloan, the recent lobbying thriller starring Jessica Chastain. And Salt and Fire, which is the most recent fictional film from the great Werner Herzog. It was one of our closest polls in a long time, but in the end, To the Bone came out on top with 38% of the vote, narrowly topping Miss Sloan's 35%. To the Bone was written and directed by Marty Noxon, a longtime TV writer and producer, hence this episode's theme and our cue shots to come later. And she's best known for working on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the Bachelor skewering lifetime drama Unreal, although she left the show right after the first season, season. which was wildly acclaimed. And then then after she left, it was not quite so acclaimed. But nonetheless, uh, she has co-written a few films in the past, including I Am Number Four and the remake of Fright Night, which actually got pretty good reviews. Did we talk about that on this podcast? I can't remember. Might have come up at some point. This, though, is her feature directorial debut. Uh, It stars Lily Collins as Ellen, a college dropout struggling with anorexia. Um, Her family is basically ready to give up on her and sort of as like a last-ditch effort she agrees to this impatient program overseen by Dr. Beckham played by Keanu Reeves, who I was not expecting to see in this film. She moves into this house with five other young women with eating disorders and one man, Luke, played by Alex Sharp. She goes to therapy, she talks to other people in the house, she learns their stories, and slowly grows closer and closer to Luke. This is the second of the last three Film Spotting SVU episodes where we have discussed a Netflix original movie. The streaming service picked up this film after its premiere at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival. And in that previous episode, we talked about Bong Joon-ho's Okja. And we, I think we talked about how Netflix has had a lot of success with television, but has mostly struggled so far when it comes to making and distributing their movies. So, Allison, after Okja, is to the bone good enough that you're now ready to say Netflix is finally getting the hang of this whole movie thing? I do not. 
I, I have, I'm very mixed onto the bone. I think I understand why Netflix wanted it. Mm-hmm. I think that it seems like the kind of movie that people talk about on social media. Mm-hmm. It seems like the kind of movie that will could, that could potentially appeal to a young audience and a young female audience. Uh, it, it has a very easy marketing hook. You understand what it's about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and that it draws from uh, its filmmaker's personal experiences with an eating disorder herself. It seems like it has an easy narrative with which to draw people in. Um, that said, I think that it also, I didn't think of it in terms of a movie like Okja. I thought of it more in terms of um, Netflix's recent attempts to do, uh, I don't know, like a woke teen programming, mm-hmm. like 13 Reasons Why, right? It's drama that we have not talked about in here and that I have not watched. Me neither. But that was a big social media force. Huge. Right? About uh, a teenage girl who commits suicide and then leaves these tapes behind and that uh, about what happened to her uh, that her classmates learn about why she mm-hmm. she commit, she uh, killed herself. And then you have coming up Atypical, right? Which is another Netflix original series mm-hmm. about... I think you could a, put Stranger Things in this yeah, group, too. But, like, uh, it, particularly also in terms of, like, the important issue, right? Sure, sure. Like, Atypical is about uh, an autistic teenager. And, you know, I think that To the Bone kind of seems to slip in there. Mm-hmm. Like, it is dramedy programming about... Teen issues. Teenish issues. Yeah. And about this thing that, you know, teens might deal with. Right. And I think that's, I understand why they want to get in on that. Like the Degrassi kind of. It seems uh, to be working niche. for them more than other things. It does, but it's also very difficult, mm-hmm. you know? And I think 13 Reasons Why was both talked about a lot and criticized a lot, including like parents warning their children about it and like yeah. schools discussing it. And, and to the bone has been. Uh, talked about by a lot of people who have uh, had eating disorders in their past who claim it's irresponsible. Mm-hmm. So I think that I understand why they, they acquired it in terms of like this part of their brand they're building. I do think it's, it's a very difficult kind of niche to corner, attempt mm-hmm. to corner. So all of that said, uh, I think there are parts of this film that I like a lot and there are parts of it that feel extremely Sundancey. Mm. Uh, and there's very little that's surprising in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, though it has a, very, a lot of very likable cast members. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's not, I think, a particularly thrilling movie into itself. But what did you think? No, I think we're mostly on the same page. I mean, our, my question to you, as always, these questions are often very leading because they're reflecting our own thoughts about these. Maybe we should work on that. But to me... You know, uh, you mentioned the Sundance thing. It does feel very Sundancey to me. Um, you know, and this wasn't Okja felt like a movie. You know, a big movie that just happened to be premiering on Netflix. This feels like a very small little movie that you know. I don't think Netflix produced it. They just acquired it. They did for nine million dollars. Right. I should point not out, cheap. which is not there's a, like a big amount of money, especially for a movie like this. This movie looks pretty small. It looks like it costs less than that. It mostly takes place inside the house, in house. that the treatment center right. is. Yeah. I, and I totally agree that the, the, the cast is wonderful and very likable and there's some excellent performances in this movie. Um, Lily Collins I thought was very good and that guy I mentioned, Alex Sharp, the young man, yeah. thought he's wonderful he, and I looked him up and I was like, oh, this is the guy I saw in The Curious Case of, what is it, The Dog, dog at Nighttime? Yeah. Which was, was one of the best plays I've ever seen on Broadway. You would think I would remember that 
the title, but the, 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 sorry about that. But he was the lead. He won the Tony for that. He was incredible. And I didn't recognize him, partly because I was sitting in like literally the last row for the show, so I couldn't see his face, and so I didn't recognize him. But he is he is a, a talented young actor, and I, I hope he has a long career. He's very charming he is. in this. And he's like, he has such a nicely unconventional like romantic interest yes. in this. He is a former ballet dancer, and yes. he's... Very, he's a beautiful singing voice. Yes, he's very quirky. He's a little obnoxious yeah, a little and annoying, obnoxious. but in a way that's uh, likable. She's not quite sure about his sexuality at first, mm-hmm. and like I just uh, their their relationship is uh, that was I would say like the most surprising part of the movie. Sure, is just like you didn't you don't know where it's going. Right. So I like them. I like most of the people in that and the house and and you know some of the the, the family members around are actually it's a very good cast and there's some nice writing. I agree with you though that it's yeah it's not a very surprising movie visually it's incredibly boring there's just it nothing looks, it looks like TV it looks like TV it's that's very sort functional. of right and that's the other not just does it look like TV it to me felt like a pilot for a TV show I can see that um, and that's sort of why I was asking about the whole Netflix movie thing it's like even when they make or pick up and distribute and release a movie it still feels like this one really felt like a tv pilot like i and i don't necessarily say that entirely as an insult i would watch this show i would watch the show set in this house i would like to see more of these characters but this does not really feel like a like a movie to me and it certainly doesn't have a very compelling like narrative arc a hook a draw it's basically just a very i mean pleasant is the wrong thing to say because there's some very harrowing stuff in this movie too but it's like the characters are very likable you enjoy spending time with them you're interested in their dilemmas but as a story it just doesn't really go anywhere well especially when and I understand why she wanted to resist having a kind of pat ending where it's like Absolutely. and now I'm all better Absolutely. but it, it does the way it leaves things leaves you feeling like it feels like a prologue it, it really feel feels like, like a, a pilot yeah I would agree I, I think you're right on that you know I, and there are other times where this feels like um like a kind of a very lighter take on like girl interrupted, you know, sure. like that it has those resonances with things we've seen before about people in treatment for various, th- for various reasons. Um, there is something about the kind of like ragtag group of people with right. like different experiences. It's one like, flew over the cuckoo's nest. Exactly. It's, a, it's a long yeah, sort of it's sub-genre. It's kind of a funny story. Like, yes. like uh, it, it, it's not unfamiliar, certainly. Right. Um, I will say the other thing about this that I think that I re- that did surprise me and that did feel new to me is the fact that uh, Ellen Lily Collins's character is a f- not just like someone who has been struggling with anorexia but is like a former kind of like internet anorexia star right, right? like yeah. she is someone who had like a huge tumblr following for yeah, her drawings the details are left sort of ambiguous but like but that she is was famous is, on the internet for an anorexia tumblr right and that which is something that exists okay. right and is something that is like um there have been like very heated discussions about about like like pro anna as they call them tumblers and like a social media accounts where people just post photos of like extremely thin people as inspiration and things mm-hmm. like that um and I think the ways in which it this this movie tries to engage with this character, this character who's not just like stuck, unable to kind of like recover, but also stuck in that this is her, this is like been her identity, you know, mm-hmm. like that it it is the thing that she has like being the kind of rebellious uh, 
like anorexia role model has been this thing that has consumed her life. Right. That like, that is as difficult, uh, I think for her to get over and let go of like wanting to recover and actively wanting to engage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I wish that the movie had more of that. Yeah. I think what you're describing is all very interesting. And I think Lily Collins uh, plays that pretty interestingly in the movie, but you know, I don't know anything about these these tumblers. I don't know anything about these tumblers. Oy, 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 the, the kids today with the tumblers. But what you're describing there sounds, you know, potentially very upsetting, but also very fascinating. And it seems like something that maybe this movie could have explored more. Like, it's something that, I don't know, would have maybe brought more of a dimension of the unfamiliar to a movie that does feel at times pretty pretty formulaic or pretty familiar. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think especially when... The ways in which the movie depicts her relationship with her father, who never shows up, with her right. stepmother, who is like both caring but also never gets anything right. Yeah, kind of clueless. Yeah, and then her uh, biological mother, who loves her but also clearly cannot has, handle. Yeah, has like, had enough helping her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and has had kind of uh, mental health issues of her own to yes. deal with. And I think a lot of those, it's almost like the movie is aware of the fact that these are approaching cliches you know like mm-hmm. the daddy that never daddy never loved me yeah and like you know yeah and that it almost approaches them in air quotes like it's aware of the fact the fact that the father never shows up is like almost a joke but it is still also like a cliche of this mm-hmm. in in a way that the movie never deals with in any more interesting sense. Yeah, I mean, I sort of like the touch of the father never appearing in the film when by the time you realize oh he's never going to appear I think that that's you know, I thought that was a pretty appropriate touch. And I guess I, I, I like that better than sort of the, that group therapy scene, which felt very kind of on the nose to me. You know, for a while, I was kind of like, oh, I like the fact that they're making it where they're not pointing a finger. And I, I think, you know, the Keanu Reeves character even says at one point, it's never one thing that's the cause of these sorts of issues. But then, I, I don't know, at times it felt like the way they were dealing with the, with her family felt a little little on it the felt nose, like a little it was, heavy-handed. Yeah, like I mean, that, it almost at times verges, some of those scenes almost felt like they came out of like an after-school special to me or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, you know, I think that is like the parts of this movie that are the least, uh, that work the least well for me are the parts where it, it seems burdened by its own importance, yeah. you know, where it wants to be not just a movie about this character's experiences, but to be a movie that will start a conversation about eating disorders. And I think that that's when you also get into trouble because, you know, there are a lot of people who believe that just depicting eating disorders is, um, is either like triggering for people or that it, it kind of like infects people like who are vulnerable to this. And I feel like that's a conversation that is like, I am not qualified to have. And also just like, seems impossible to have right but that i do feel like the more you try and make a very important movie all caps about eating disorders the more that you are susceptible to dealing with all of these impossible kind of to reconcile pressures about what that means Mm -hmm. as opposed to just making a movie about a character right and that character's particular truth right I mean, I certainly would would not say you can't make a, a movie about this or about this character. I think, and I, I, you know, and I liked seeing this character, this young woman, and following her. I just, I guess, when the focus expanded, sometimes was where I felt like it, it, um, the the writing wasn't as sharp, and yeah, like you said, it became at times I think burdened with its own importance. Is kind of a nice way of, of putting it, because to me, like the best scenes were like the ones between Ellen and Luke. Really, was watching yeah. this. 
you know, sort of like you said, surprising relationship and some and two very talented, very likable young actors and just seeing them play off each other, like the little date that they sort of go on where they go to this restaurant and they pretend that they're dying so they can drink underage. And, and I thought that was a wonderful scene, actually. It was really one of the best parts of the movie. And 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 that really, you know, when it starts, you feel like that could be, oh, I, I feel like even though, you know, you were saying that he, the Luke character is such an unusual sort of romantic lead for this kind of movie. You do, you do feel like, oh, the quirky guy, the, the, you know, you feel like you've seen that. But then the, the, the way that those two characters interact is the part that to me felt the most fresh and real and fun and interesting. And yeah, I, 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 I agree that the more that, that, that it leans into in that direction, I think the better the movie is. The, the, the more it steers into, we have to talk about this serious thing when you already have a movie that, you know, visually is not very dynamic. It already is very talky, and what's really appealing are the actors, their performances, and some of the dialogue. I think then you you run into a little trouble. Sure. And then you have things like there's a scene where they go to Rain Room at LACMA, oh. and it's just, and it's aiming for like this joy and transcendence. Why and are just we here? So, like, this is Because art. we are alive. And yeah. it's like, it's just, it's very hokey. Uh, and I mean, I think that it that runs into, Keanu Reeves's character runs into that as well. I mean, he, the movie doesn't, to its credit, doesn't let him be like the kind of goodwill hunting, like right. person who like has therapist. the answers, all the answers. Sure. And like, uh, and the movie is very clear that like ultimately no one can give you the answer like or uh, for the main character at least the answer is that she has to want to fix herself right uh, but it does also he gives speeches still a lot he you know yells bad words and uh, he doesn't ever seem like a person no Keanu you know Keanu's not been on a good run lately he's been doing a lot of fun interesting different things and you know i was like i said i didn't realize he was in this movie and so when he showed up i was like oh look at that uh uh, this is not one of his better recent things i don't think that the script does him any favors like you said that he he they they don't make him into the goodwill hunting super therapist but at the same time he does give like i think you set it up perfectly he has a lot of these long speeches like sort of i'm going to tell you the truth man nobody can do this for you dude you know like and uh i I'd, I'd be happy to see keanu reeves as a therapist theoretically i just don't think he really nailed it this time no and uh, it, the movie almost doesn't know what to do with his character yeah it's uh, i don't know it's a very like nice movie yeah i didn't i didn't dislike it i you know i if i might maybe i'm being a little harsh i do want to say like you know i watched it last night and 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 went by relatively quickly i was engaged in it i didn't feel the urge to to turn it off or to flip the channel or to check my email performances like lily taylor is i mean i've lily collins i who is someone i've never like particularly who's never like really been on my radar. Sure. She's been in a lot of things. This is the first thing I've seen her in where I was like, she's very you, good. Yeah. You are a, a, a leading lady. Like this is good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Lily Taylor, uh, in this small part as, uh, as the mom, as the mom is very good. The, the sister, Liana Liberato. I don't mm-hmm. think I've ever seen her in anything else, or at least I didn't recognize her. I thought she was really good too. She has just a couple of scenes. And I thought, oh, she's a that. This is another young actor that I like. There's a lot of good young actors in here, that uh, you know. That I mean, I could see this movie in like 
15 years of some of these actors hit it big people going wow look at all the people that were in this movie when they were no one oral history of (laughs) totally yes it it very well that could really be its legacy it's just this this solid little movie that went on to you know sort of launch a couple of careers of some some talented people all right so that's to the bone it is available right now on netflix support for this podcast comes from state farm with surprisingly great rates state farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance state farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs you can manage your coverage pay your bill or even file a claim right from your phone with the state farm mobile app and you can always call one of the state farm agents in neighborhoods across the country Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Dr. Banner, now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. We have talked, I think, at different times, never maybe explicitly as like the theme of the episode, but we've talked about the fact that a lot of people from the world of film have drifted into the world of television in the age of prestige television, peak TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people that we've associated before uh, with being filmmakers have become showrunners and show creators uh, or, or just episode directors. So we are taking a look at the, uh, what, what happens when it goes the other way around uh, in this case. People who make their name in television uh, decide to give it a try, mm. decide to make a movie. Uh, so this was like a tougher. This was a tougher category <laughs> to, yes. to deal with. Yes. Um, though I will say, I did want to point out beyond uh, the two most obvious names in this, which would probably be J.J. Abrams and Joss, Joss Whedon, right? Um, that there have been a like this has been a place where studio movies have been pulling directors from recently, like Stephen S. Knights, who did Spartacus, mm-hmm. is directing Pacific Rim Uprising. Right. Alan Taylor did a bunch of Game of Thrones and then went on to do the immortal classic Terminator Genesis. Mm -hmm. And didn't he do the second Thor movie? Possibly. Which was... Yeah, but he's very he's very good. Uh, Noah Noah Hawley of Fargo and Legion right? is directing Doctor Doom. Oh yeah. Aaron Sorkin is making his directorial debut this year with Molly's Game. Yeah, uh, and of course has written a lot of screenplays. Has written too. a lot of screenplays as well. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it, you can't really classify Aaron Sorkin as TV or film. It's For a long tough. time, he was definitely more of a TV guy. Now mm-hmm. he seems seems more both, film. but leaning more film. But he started with film. So I have whatever. Who knows? It doesn't matter. Um, We have, I feel like, talked about uh, some other... um, We've talked about Not Fade Away before, Mm -hmm. which is... uh, Yes, you had to remind me I wasn't allowed to pick that because you knew that I would. Yes. And I would. You would. I love that movie. Um, But if you want to watch that, that is on Tubi TV. Meanwhile, Matt Weiner's directorial debut, Are You Here, is available for rent. Yes. I don't, would not recommend it. I never saw that, but I did. that did come to mind. Yeah. I, I, one of the interesting things in researching this is the reminder that how many people who are who have made some of the most praised tv yes uh don't necessarily do that great when they try out their first film Uh, or their second or third i mean i think that's the interesting thing here is that i mean you say that like the people have done the most successful tv if you fail at tv you're probably not going to get a gig at a movie so these are you know like you think of these great television creators and a lot of them are incredibly talented and wonderful and then they go to make a movie 
And even when they're good, they have a hard time. I mean, you know, you mentioned Not Fade Away. David Chase makes the what's considered like arguably the greatest TV show of all time. And he makes this movie, which I thought was wonderful, but it, it did fade away. Like it, it did nothing. And it's like, it's funny how you can uh, become a big, big deal in television. And then it's like, they're not, they, they may seem similar. And these days they may seem closer than ever because you're watching them all on a box or on your laptop, but they are different forms. And it seems like you can be very good at one and not necessarily so good at the other. And that there are different skills that apply. Yeah. It's, it's funny that I feel like a lot of online discussion has been about uh, how tired people are of talk of TV shows being described as like one long movie. You know, people have been pushing back about that against that and being like, why does that, that's not good TV. Like one long movie means that you're watching like four hours of exposition. Yeah. Um, and I there feel are like some TV shows lately that do feel like that. They though. do absolutely. Yes, well, and some I, of the bad ones. Yeah, and I feel like in in looking at some of the movies that came out of this, it's a reminder of also that uh, what makes for good TV doesn't necessarily make for a good film. Right. That you can end up with like a very sitcommy or very pat movie. I uh, my examples, you know, I honestly I picked two, two movies that I think are that I don't really like, but I, I think I, are yeah. very interesting. Same, right? Same. Like this I, is these a place. Are, these are questionable recommendations, but... right? Right. These are recommendations to watch with a, a skeptical eye and perhaps to learn. It's. I almost feel like we're basically pitching someone to do like the ultimate like dissertation or thesis or something. Yes. Because this these would movies would make a fascinating almost like a book really to like the movies of television creators and how weird and often how bad they are. Yeah. There are I didn't want to throw out I didn't end up picking any of these, but James L. Brooks, who got his start in TV, is yeah. probably one of the, the rare, best yeah yep, people, good examples um, at this. Greg Berlanti did uh some movies in there that mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone was like wildly in love with, but that he has had a little bit more success than some other people. Right. Alan Ball has, uh, I know, I don't, I was like, remember Towelhead, a movie that was supposed to be extremely inflammatory and then kind of like also faded from memory. That was his directorial debut. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting world. Do you want to go first? Sure. So my first pick, I consider one of the strangest Hollywood movies I have ever seen. And I have a feeling it's got to be on the list of, all time, you know, for if you factor it in everything. It is called Pretty Maids All in a Row. It's from 1971. It's directed by Roger Vadim, the French filmmaker of And God Created Women and Barbarella. This was the first movie he made in America. And obviously, he's not the TV guy here. The TV guy here is the writer and producer, Gene Roddenberry, the man who created Star Trek and all of its various spinoffs or at least the first couple until he passed away. So you hear the director of Barbarella and the creator of Star Trek, and you think, okay, they must have made a weird, wacky science fiction film. That is not what happened here. No, this is a bizarre mix of body teen sex comedy Hmm. with murder mystery. It is set at this, like, California high school where all of the girls are absolutely gorgeous i mean like literally every single one remember when the i think it's the second transformers came out and shia labeouf went to like college and the college every single woman looked like a victoria's secret model because they were victoria's secret models that is like that's what this high school is like but with like they all look like playboy bunnies it is ridiculous and one by one they're winding up murdered the main character is a boy named ponce like ponce de leon and uh He's the one who discovers the first victim, and the, his main storyline, besides the murders and such, is about 
his penis. And um, basically, he's turned on all the time, and he can't control his that affliction. So the solution in the film is the school's guidance counselor, played by Rock Hudson, convinces a substitute teacher, played by Angie Dickinson, basically to sleep with him. Oh, and did I mention that Rock Hudson's character, uh, by the way, Rock Hudson was 46 at the time they made this movie. Ooh. Did I mention he sleeps with a lot of the, t- the teenage girls in the movie? Because he does. Oh, and did I mention Telly Savalas plays the police investigator who's trying to catch the killer? Because he does. And did I mention that James Doohan, a.k.a. Scotty from Star Trek, is his partner? This is a real movie that exists. And it has a, a lot of nudity and a lot of leering at these beautiful young women, including more upskirt shots than any film I've ever seen outside of Love Exposure. Uh... And I guess to a certain extent, maybe it's sort of what you might expect if you know Roger Vadim's work. I mean, you know, you think of Barbarella, you think sure. of Immigrated Women. You know, he's noted, noted for movies with a lot of sexuality. But it seems out of left field a little for Gene Roddenberry. It seems sort, very out of right. left field. Right. I mean, so to put it, I mean, to, well, the more I thought about it, I guess, it's like you can sort of see it, I guess, maybe. I mean, Kirk always slept with a lot of like crazy aliens. So there was that. And even though Star Trek was this future of equality all the women were still wearing tiny tiny miniskirts on the enterprise so perhaps the female form was a shared interest of of roddenberry's and vadim's uh i definitely want to make clear i don't think this is a good movie although quentin tarantino put this on his sight and sound ballad in 2012 of course he did among the 10 greatest films ever made it is a fascinating movie and certainly gene roddenberry's involvement and this is the only film screenplay he was ever credited for writing it does make it more interesting you know if 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 it was just roger vadim wrote directed it it would still be a crazy movie but the fact that the guy who made star trek which we think of as this like benevolent sort of you know a vision of optimism futurism that this movie that's just like kind of sleazy and and gross it's it's bizarre. I mean, it's it's almost like someone, even though it's made in 1971, it's like if someone today said, I, growing up as a kid, my two favorite movies were American Pie and Scream. I want to make them again, but I want to make them as one movie. And that's kind of what it is with a lot of uncomfortable uh, sexuality. Uh, I It was made in 1971, the very early 70s. It was It was... In a way, it was of its time. I mean, that was the end of the sexual revolution. It was the new Hollywood era when they were trying anything to see what would work. But it's still, viewed from today's perspective, it is it is kind of shocking. Uh, but if you're willing to uh, engage, uh, you, can, you can take a look and, and see for yourself. So it's Pretty Maids all in a row. It is available for rent on an Apple on iTunes. Not a, not everyone has it, but it is currently available on iTunes. Well, for my first pick, I've also got a film from 1971, though. Te- what a year that was! Yeah, technically, it was made in 1969 and then shelved for two years because the distributor was not sure what to do with it. I will say this one I would give uh, like a tentative uh, recommendation towards. It is Cold Turkey, which is available for rent, uh, directed by Norman Lear the legendary TV creator behind All in the Family and the Jeffersons and Maude and many others. He's a lot better known as a writer and producer than as a director, though he had directed episodes of All in the Family and the Martha Ray show before he made this his film directorial debut. 
it is an odd but still pretty sharp satire, uh, but it is based around a norm that has declined significantly since the 70s. That would be smoking. Mm-hmm. It's set in this small town in Iowa called Eagle Rock, a fictional place that has been economically depressed uh, ever since the military closed its base. And uh, trying to help the town is Reverend Clayton Brooks, played by Dick Van Dyke, mm-hmm. who uh, doesn't like it and actually really wants to be reassigned to somewhere shishier, and has this idea that if he can help the town, he will be transferred. So he seizes on this idea that they have to win a contest that's been proposed by a tobacco uh, ad executive played by Bob Newhart. Uh, he proposes a $25 million prize to any American town that can completely quit smoking for 30 days. <laughs> uh, this is the kind of thing that in 2017 terms seems like a really funny thing to be yeah. like a, a whole laughed. town has to struggle to quit smoking. Yeah. It's too, it's inconceivable. Um, but for Eagle Rock, it is basically, it is close to inconceivable. Wow. Um, and the, the tobacco companies, in fact, the reason they agreed to this is because they didn't think anyone would actually be able to do it. It's just a PR campaign for them. It is a way for them to earn media praise. They're looking for comparisons to the Nobel Prize. Uh, but Eagle Rock, under the Reverend's leadership, they get everyone to agree and commit and throw out their cigarettes. And they get station people outside the town to make sure no cigarettes are, sm- are snuck inside. And immediately, everyone it turns the town into this impatient, surly, stress-eating mess. Um, what's also funny is that this formerly conservative town under the stress of quitting smoking, starts becoming home to like sketchy hypnotists and massage therapists who it's implied give uh, give happy endings out. Uh, all of these things to help uh, distract them from, sure. from the smoking they're not doing. And the kids in the town start protesting. Uh, it's like the 60s have finally arrived in Eagle Rock, <laughs> Iowa. Uh, the media also descends on the town, and so does that tobacco exec, um, who tries as hard as possible to find a smoker so that they won't have to pay. You know, Lear is famous for using the sitcom form to break ground about the kind of subject matter TV could tackle, famously pushing boundaries and like uh, t- taking on like difficult subject matter and timely subject matter. And what is, I think, most compelling about Cold Turkey is that it doesn't feel like an episode of TV, but it does feel like it similarly kind of takes an axe to the image of wholesome Americana that had a grip on television for a while. Um, It's increasingly dark comedy um, about trying to convince people to work for a common good and how impossible that basically is that uh especially the the and and especially seeing this whole town full of people who are just like jonesing for nicotine and like um fiending for it and going completely uh off their rockers uh it's also a movie about the kind of um passing off greed as like a form of morality you know that uh the fact that this um this becomes like a bigger and bigger deal starts earning, uh, turning the Reverend into a hero when frankly, all he wanted to do was leave. Um, the ending is magnificent. Like it ends on an image that is so dark. It's wonderful. It is like, um, 
it really surprised me and uh, I loved it. Uh, it's a very kind of slow start of a movie, but the ending was totally worthwhile and also features a song by Randy Newman. I was going to say, it does. I, I was going to say soundtrack by Randy Newman. Yeah. Um, it's, I had never heard of this movie before we started uh, looking into this topic. Me neither. Uh, Sounds pretty good it, as it you're is, describing it. It is pretty, it's got, uh, it's got a lot going on, but I, it, and it feels it, there's something very weird about Dick Van Dyke being in the middle of it. It's like Dick Van Dyke were dropped into a Robert Altman film. Like he doesn't mesh at yeah. all with the kind of tone of the movie, but uh, it's, it is, uh, it's got a lot the, to recommend. And uh, it comes from a really interesting talent, Norman Lear himself. Uh, so that's Cold Turkey and you can find it available for rent. You didn't mention, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page here, you didn't mention what seems very notable about this film as well. It is possibly the first time that flatulence was ever depicted in a U.S. movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Attention must be paid. All right. My next pick, also not what I would call a conventionally good movie, although I will say I liked this movie fine when it came out in 2007, but watching it again this week was much weirder than I remembered. It is B-movie from directors Simon J. Smith and Stephen Hickner, and produced, co-written, and starring Jerry Seinfeld. And this is Jerry Seinfeld's one, his one big creative project, really, since Seinfeld ended in 1998. So you want to count Cars? Sure, he does Comedians. I was going to say, he does his web series, Comedian Cars Getting Coffee, which is basically like the reality series version of Seinfeld. And I I love that. It's really a lot of fun. That's great. He does stand-up. He's appeared as himself on Curb Your Enthusiasm, but that's basically it. Really, the one big swing he took after Seinfeld was B-Movie, this big animated feature for DreamWorks about a talking bee who gets the hots for a human woman and then sues humanity on behalf of bees for humanity stealing and selling honey without the bee's permission. (laughs) That is the actual plot of this movie. Bees can speak English, as it turns out. They simply choose not to at least in front of humans. But Seinfeld's Barry B. Benson breaks that uh, solemn vow of silence when he meets and (laughs) basically falls in love with a human woman, Vanessa, who's a florist uh, voiced by Renee Zellweger. And then, yes, he explores the human world, finds out people eat honey. He's outraged by this fact. Uh, He doesn't like it. He especially doesn't like that actor Ray Liotta has his own brand of honey. And Ray Liotta appears as himself in the film. Uh, He decides to fight back on behalf of his fellow bugs. And there are actually other wacky plot twists from there. You know, like, I don't remember this movie very well. I saw it when it came out. I was amused. And I forgot about it. And I did not remember it being as strange as it was. I can only assume that being just as huge a Seinfeld fan as I am and was... And, you know, when I was a kid, that was my favorite show. I'd seen every episode many times, quoting it all all the time, that I must have just been willing to overlook the story. Because, I mean, there are some good jokes here. You know, Seinfeld as the bee, he gets to, I mean, he's basically just playing Jerry Seinfeld he's as a bee. only ever just playing Jerry right. Seinfeld. Right, and he's commenting on the, you know, on the peculiarities of humanity from the perspective of a bee, and then sometimes on the peculiarities of bees and nature in general. And there's some, you know, there's some funny stuff in there, and... Uh, the other writers, besides Seinfeld, were all Seinfeld alums. Additional voices include Seinfeld alums like Patrick Warburton, Michael Richards, Larry Miller, and you know some of Seinfeld's comedy friends are in it too. Chris Rock has a surprisingly good part as a mosquito. 
very funny mosquito. But what I think you see here is sort of what we talked about before, is a guy who is incredibly successful in one form, arguably perfected. The sitcom, the traditional multi-camera sitcom, I'm not sure it's ever been done better than on Seinfeld. But, and trying to see if those same skills could be applied to another form, in this case, sort of a, a children's animated movie. And I don't know that it was entirely successful. But I, I think there is something like perversely watchable about seeing people kind of take their skills and like try to make them fit into this other thing where they're not as natural. Like like you said, Jerry Seinfeld always played Seinfeld. Well, that was very easy when he was playing Jerry Seinfeld on a show called Seinfeld. When you're playing Barry B. Benson on a in a, a wacky animated movie called B Movie, it's a little bit it's a little bit tougher to swallow. But uh, if you are a Seinfeld fan, it's, I can probably recommend it on th- in that regard. And if you're not a Seinfeld fan and you just want to see one of the stranger animated movies that has been uh, uh, made by a big studio, I think this one definitely applies. It is B-Movie, B-E-E, Movie, and it is available right now on Netflix. I'm glad that we never set these up ahead of time, and yet this time our our picks have matched up really well yeah. because my second pick is Sour Grapes. Oh, yeah. I thought about doing rent. this. Yes. Yeah. You, you got it basically before I could. Yeah. You called it. Um, this is the 1998 movie written and directed by Larry David. Yes. His only directorial effort to date. Uh, though as a TV writer and producer and star, he, of course, co-created Seinfeld with Jerry Seinfeld and uh, the returning Curb Your Enthusiasm um, I definitely would not call Sour Grapes a good film, though it is, uh, as an artifact, certainly, uh, has a lot of worth, I will say, uh, because it is so much a Larry David product, yeah. like unmistakably a Larry David product. Mm. It is the entire movie is about the kind of petty but rapidly escalating scenario that would be the basis of the average Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm episode, except that it gets stretched over an hour and a half uh, in a way that many people found agonizing uh, when the movie came out, among them Roger Ebert, who yes, called... Famously in- yes, negative. Called, yes. A rare, like, thumbs down, zero star yes, review. zero stars. I think it was included on his worst films of the year list, and he wrote of it... I can't easily remember a film I've enjoyed less. Ouch. Um, the movie stars Craig Bierko and Stephen Weber as Richie and Evan Maxwell, cousins who live in New York and who go to Atlantic City together for a weekend, bringing along their respective lady friends. Evan is a brain surgeon. Richie is a shoe designer. Neither of them is uh, broke by any means. But they start a battle over money when... In an extremely Larry David fashion, uh, Richie wins about $400,000, a $400,000 jackpot off of a slot machine using three quarters, two of which he borrowed from Evan. And so, of course, everyone's really happy and excited. And then Evan starts thinking, hey, maybe I'm entitled to half of of that that money. money. Maybe I'm entitled to two thirds of that money because it was (laughs) two of my quarters. And of course... They both, both of these men start enlisting all the various strangers and people in their lives to debate this issue and uh, whether they're right or not. Richie, of course, does not agree. And every time the two cousins uh, try and make up, things get worse and worse. Uh, One of them may try and convince the other he's dying. One of them may attempt to have his mother kind of murdered for reasons too uh, complicated to explain. These characters are 
like the characters in Seinfeld and Kirby Enthusiasm, despicable, really. They're they're hilariously despicable. Um, but because this is a movie, that's all we get from them. Yeah. They have not had time to grow on us. We have never gotten invested in their pettiness in any perverse way the way we do in Seinfeld or right. Kirby Enthusiasm. Instead, we're basically just watching this movie about two jerks yep. <laughs> who like hurt be all of these people in their lives yes. and like lose things because they cannot let this thing go. Right. They, they like it, it comes at this giant cost to them. And, and that is like the moral of the story. Basically right. it's just like, it's that's it. Um, and to see Larry David try and bring the sensibility of an, of a, of a sitcom episode which then, of course, always like resets in a certain way, and then you go on again uh, to bring that into a movie where that becomes the entire point of the movie. It definitely does not feel the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is something really funny about <clears throat> how, in just doing the same thing he has always been doing, but like putting it into movie how, form, how badly, how it, goes. badly it goes. Like, yeah, uh, it's, it is a yeah, it's a fascinating example of of what we've been talking about. Yeah, it it should work. You would think. I mean, La- I mean, it's Larry David doing Larry David things, mm-hmm. and when he's done it on TV, it's never not been successful right. for him. Well, and I think also, you know, when you have these characters who are like despicable and they make like, like they do terrible things to people, there's this whole thing involving a fake friend style sitcom and one of the actors on it and surgery gone wrong. There's this whole thing involving a homeless man who uh, is gifted with various things out of spite, basically. Uh, it's uh there there are jokes that are made that <clears throat> and i think it was it was funny to go back and read Roger Ebert's review because he i think has a lot of trouble he assumes that you're supposed to like these characters and it's part of the reason he's like so offended by the movie and even if you know that you're not supposed to like them it's a difficult movie to contend with just because you're like why am i watching why this am i watching two miserable people yes. right i feel like the secret i almost wonder if like what he learned from this i mean granted like you said the characters on seinfeld aren't super likable although over time we grow to love them and they they get to be nicer occasionally or whatever i feel like what he learned here is like people will get it more or enjoy it more if i'm the one who's suffering like i think that was the secret ingredient because on curb your enthusiasm it's just one guy who's just an, a jerk is the one jerk and the world and very difficult yes. yes and the world is constantly punishing him right right and that's where it becomes funny because it's funny to laugh at the at and the th- jerk yeah. and then you can see yourself in him a bit yes because you don't want to just punish him forever right. uh i will say larry david himself it's not really stood by this film he's made jokes about it no, he in, Cur- it in he, curb your enthusiasm yeah uh, but it is still out there and available for rent <laughs> if you want to take a look. That is Sour Grapes. I'm not going to lie. I'm impressed. You've got some balls breaking in here. You should see my balls, then you'd be really impressed. Hmm. I'll take your word for it. All right, before we wrap things up, let's uh, let's talk about some new movies in theaters as we are recording this. Uh, two big movies opened this weekend as we are sitting here talking. One of them we've both seen, so we'll talk about that. One of them I have seen, and then one of the big films from next week, Allison has already seen, so she will talk about that film. The film we have both seen is Atomic Blonde. This is the new action spy vehicle starring Charlize Theron. It's directed by David Leach, who was uncredited but worked on the first John Wick. He directed John Wick 2. His next assignment is going to be a big deal. Deadpool 2. He is directing the Deadpool sequel. 
and he's certainly known for these kind of very violent action films. This one is a little less actiony, a little more spy espionage, Cold War, set in Berlin, right at the turn, uh, right at the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall. I cannot explain the plot any more than that. It is baffling, but it involves this spy played by Charlize Theron trying to recover basically the knock list from Mission Impossible. And also find a mole. And also find a mole, which was also in all of the Mission Impossibles. There's always a mole in a Mission Impossible movie, yeah. Yeah, and so while, and she's doing this in Berlin, James McAvoy is sort of like the head of the MI6 British, uh, like the British spy group in Berlin, but he never does any work and he's actually like a smuggler and Allison what did you think of Atomic Blonde I really enjoyed it mm-hmm. I it, it is it's all of its uh the pleasures it tries to deliver are so kind of straightforward and immediate they are like everyone looks beautiful yes everyone wears cool clothes yes uh everyone acts very cool yes uh there are occasional like very good fight scenes including one very good one one show-stopping yes. all-time great scene yes. yes uh and and that's it like you don't need to the plot like basically i feel like the plot like is it's like the maltese opaque. falcon it, yeah it, it's like forget it's like, it don't even trying. try yeah don't, don't even it doesn't try. matter like it doesn't matter yeah um it and it makes I, not that Charlie is there and needs you to make a case for her as an action hero, but uh, she is a very good one. She's in this. terrific. Yeah, yeah. We're we we we're, uh, we're in agreement. I think you might have liked it just a little bit more than me. I maybe would have. I feel like if you're going to make a movie as hard to follow as this, and you're as you're saying, it's a movie of superficial pleasures. Don't even bother with making the story so complicated. Just <laughs> stop with the story and just let Charlie Saren beat up more people, which she does wonderfully. Let her just be incredibly beautiful and stylish, which yes. she is. There's she has she gets the coolest clothes. Uh, her close-ups, just the close-ups of her face. It's like the movie has a lot of close-ups of her face where you're just invited to just stare at her face. It's like this is the most perfect face that's ever existed. It's yeah. just like shockingly beautiful. Yeah, and the lighting and the colors are all moody and weird and fun, and it's just it is. It's a fun movie to watch. It just doesn't make any sense at all and a lot of there's like needless twists and there's like a whole flashback structure that they could have probably just gotten rid of completely and it's just like just just let Charlize Theron kick people in the throat. Like, I, I can we just mind. do that? I didn't mind all of the needless twistiness because I'm kind of like, it's a spy movie. That's sure, what spy movies do. I know, but like to me, it's like if you're going to make a movie like so much like Mission Impossible, like just, just do that. Just make more, just make it more <laughs> fun. Don't make, don't try to... Uh, I don't know, uh, aspire to like, oh, confusing Yeah, spy. but it has a sense of humor about it. It also has like, it has music choices that are so on the, Very nose, on the nose that they're they're delightful. Like they're they're funny. You, you're, you're having a movie set in 1989 Berlin and you play Dirk Hamasar. It's like every song you would think they would play in this movie <laughs> yeah, does get played. Yeah. <laughs> I think some people might enjoy that aspect a little less than you did. I know you really love the music. I thought it was like, very winking in a way that I thought was like, I mean, cause the, it, it makes it clear how the movie's relationship to like its fidelity of, towards the eighties is like, so half like hearted. It just, it, the clothes are not particularly eighties. Uh, the only thing that's really eighties about it, other than the technology, like they don't have cell phones right. is that the Berlin wall is in the process of yes. falling, but yes. yeah, that it, 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 it is in the eighties in air quotes. Yeah, but it's a fun. It's a fun movie. I, I don't know how it's doing at the box office. We were just looking at the cinema scores, and it didn't have a great cinema score. It had a, like a B, and we were saying, oh, that's not 
not good and kind of surprising given that it's just like a it's fun so movie. Fun. It's it seems so like a movie fun. that if it doesn't do well in theaters, like it's going to be one that in like five years people will. Oh, yeah. Atomic Blonde. I love Atomic. I love the stairwell scene in Atomic Blonde. The, the YouTube clip of the stairwell scene in Atomic Blonde is going to be viewed 12 million times. Yep. I have no, no doubt about that. All right. The other big movie this week, which Allison made the unfortunate choice to avoid. My soul couldn't handle it. It was. It is. It will forever be the emoji movie. This is an animated film based on emoji, the characters on your phone. You don't need to explain that. (laughs) The movie does need to explain it because I don't think it ever really figures out why it's it's making it. Um, This this movie is a disaster. I don't I don't know what else to say. It it was really the worst thing I have seen in a very very long time. And um, a colleague who was sitting near me described it to another colleague. My reaction to it, they said I had a conniption. Um, they, they were worried for my sanity because I was, I, I, I had a moment where I, my soul almost left my body and I started laughing so hard. I started crying. Not, it wasn't nothing on screen was funny, but the fact that I was spending my life watching the movie was very existentially funny to me. And I almost had a mental breakdown. Do you have any questions about the emoji movie for me? Uh, TJ Miller has been on a weird press terror recently. Yes, he's getting paid globally for yes, this movie. Yes, getting paid globally. How does he do as the voice of the outcast emoji, whatever he is? Very poorly. Um, <laughs> the weird thing is, you know, the, 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 the concept of the movie is that he plays this meh emoji. His name is Gene Meh. Uh, and all the emojis, because they're emojis, only make one face. Um, but Gene is special. He's different. He can make lots of faces. And this is a problem for him because it violates the rules of emojis and, and all the other emojis want to kick him out of Textopolis, the place where they live. And uh, so, like, he should be, like, super animated, high personality, and he is not. Like, the character is just, like, basically his definition of uh, this character is he's a character with tons of personality and T.J. Miller's is just, he's not getting paid globally for what he's doing here. Mm-hmm. It's unfor- unfortunate. Yeah. It, I, I, it's... So bad. So bad. And the message of the movie is buy a cell phone and hopefully uh, it might make a girl like you. That is literally the message of the movie. Go look. Go look. It's going to make more money than Atomic Blah on this one, it though. It almost definitely will. Yep. And it'll sell more cell phones, too. Uh, okay. So now next week. Though open and limited release this week. Apparently open and limited, very limited release is uh, Detroit, yes. which is... You know, it is it is the new Catherine Bigelow film, mm-hmm. written by Mark. Written Bull. by Mark Bull. They've worked on all their pre- the last couple of movies together. They make very serious, intense movies. Yes, and this is coming out at the basically the even though summer continues for another month, this is the last week of the summer, August fourth. This is the last week where any big movies are coming out at all, and they're putting it out now. I'm very curious about the decision to do that. It is an odd fit for i don't know it's an odd fit for like almost any season i you know it's not i would say it's certainly not like the hurt locker where you're like this is still something you could describe as an action movie okay you know it is based on this incident that happened during the detroit riots uh and I think 1967, yep. where there was a, a hotel in which the police went in and basically killed three people three black men and uh, held a bunch of others uh and, and brutalize them for for a long time. Um, and then, of course, I, you know, we're not punished severely for it. A, a pattern that continues today. Right. Um, 
And it's it's mostly just it's about that incident, which consumes a, a giant part of the movie. And then it is about the trial and right. then it is aftermath. And not is, so much about the riots. No, the riots it. are happening. Right. But this is it's really about this thing happening it's about during this particular the riots. thing that happens. Yeah. Right. You like see the riots. You see Detroit as this turned into a war zone, basically, right. including the National Guard getting called in. But it is mostly a lot of it takes place in this like little hallway in the hotel. And it is just, it is very well made and extremely difficult to watch, you know? And I think, and I, I do, I will say, you know, the, this is a movie that we're going to be talking about for a lot. I, I think that it doesn't quite justify what it wants to put on screen, you know? Like, this is just, like, a lot of, of, uh, of basically, like, suffering um, and brutality. And I don't think that the movie, which also strains very clearly to be important, it starts with a, an opening sequence that puts the riots in the context of the great migration and white flight. Like histor- it puts the context of like this huge, like kind of like uh, kind of racial movements in across the century, you know? So it aims like very big in terms of the context it's, it's giving. I don't think that it entirely justifies its own existence in just the amount of kind of like, pain it puts on screen and then the kind of like ending it gives i think it ends really well but you know like that i'm not sure not why. a ringing endorsement here is what i'm, I'm getting I just, i'm not sure why she was drawn to it i guess i understand why it seems like very timely material sure, it's relevant but at the same time i mean these things happen now. You don't need to go back to 1967 to find incidents of racialized police violence, you know? Um, and I think that, I, I do think it is like, I think she's an, a phenomenal director and I think that it's very, very well made. Um, I do kind of like, after watching it, I did kind of think, <laughs> it did kind of be like, I wish she would stop working with Mark Bull. Hmm. Like, because I think that this, pattern that they've been on together of making these kind of like journalistically inspired very serious uh movies about like you know issues dark issues yes. like serious serious issues, issues. Uh, i do think that like in this case uh yeah it leads you to be like well but like why make this and why you make this movie um so i don't know i don't think it's uh, I, I think part of the reason that it's coming out in summer is because it doesn't fit well in like prestige movie time mm-hmm it doesn't yeah it's 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 a difficult one it's uh, one i'm still kind of like turning over in my mind yeah i'm, get, I'm getting that yeah yeah but it's uh i mean it's certainly one that i think everyone will be talking about all right well let's get to behind the eight ball here where we wrap things up on the show by giving you some new releases on streaming Two listener recommendations you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com, and one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists on Netflix. Allison, you want me to go first since you just told us all about Detroit? All right. Here we go. First up, available on HBO Go or HBO Now, I have Tour de Pharmacy. This is the second of these fake HBO sports documentaries by director Jake Szymanski and Andy Samberg. Um, have you seen these, Allison? I have not. They're so, so much fun. The first was Seven Days in Hell, which was about this legendary tennis match, supposedly. And this one is about a notorious running of the Tour de France, where the entire field was doping. 
Not sure how that's different from a regular Tour de France, but it's still a very funny short. And that's the thing. These are like, they're not really features. They're each about 40 minutes, and that's kind of why I like them. They don't wear out their welcome. They're short, just rapid-fire comedy, tons of supporting, like, surprisingly big names and supporting roles and cameos that I guess they convince them because they're like, we can literally shoot this in an hour, so just come and do it. And they have these great people in them. This one has John Cena, Orlando Bloom, Freddie Highmore, Jeff Goldblum, Danny Glover, Will Forte, Nathan Fiedler, Kevin Bacon, and as themselves, Mike Tyson and Lance Armstrong. So I liked Seven Days in Hell better. I would say if you haven't seen either one, start with that one. And if you like that, then watch Tour de Pharmacy. But they're both funny. They're really funny. Um, and they are available on HBO Go and HBO Now. Next up on 2 TV, I've got Vampire's Kiss, which features perhaps the Nicolas Cage-iest Nicolas Cage performance of all time. He plays a literary agent who believes he is slowly turning into a vampire, but maybe he's just losing his mind. Either way, Nicolas Cage is definitely <laughs> losing his mind on screen playing this character. Uh, we see him recite the entire alphabet in one scene for no particular reason. He occasionally puts on a bizarre accent. Uh, he runs down a street in New York City screaming, I'm a vampire, I'm a vampire, over and over again. It is truly one of the most mesmerizing things I've ever seen in my life. If you love Nicolas Cage, if you love weird Nicolas Cage, and haven't seen Vampire's Kiss, you need to you need to watch it. So Vampire's Kiss, available on Tubi TV. And finally, I wanted to give a shout-out here to a new streaming service that I think might be of interest to our listeners. It is free if you're a student or your public library is affiliated with it. It's called Canopy with a K. The website is canopystreaming.com. They have 30,000 titles. They're adding new titles. And they have a ton of Criterion Collection movies. And again, it's all free if your university or your local public library is affiliated with the site. Uh, they just added the Brooklyn Public Library, so now I can use it. I was using it yesterday. It's they've got a great selection. Just a few of the titles I found browsing around. Eight and a Half, Paris, Texas, In the Mood for Love, Bicycle Thieves, I Am Not Your Negro, Old Boy, M, The Rules of the Game, Stalker, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and Yojimbo. If you listen to this podcast, I, I definitely think it's worth at least checking out. you got nothing to lose. If you can't use it, you can't use it. But maybe you, if your library or your school has a connection with Canopy, you can get access, and it's totally free for you. So it's worth at least investigating. The website is Canopy Streaming, Canopy with a K, dot com. All right, two listener recommendations. Our first comes from Andy. Andy writes, hey guys, I learned about the first Stakeland movie from listening to your show back in 2014, and I loved it. It felt like the answer to the question I had never asked. That question being, what if Terrence Malick made a genre film about a post-apocalyptic world where vampires ruled the countryside? The sequel is called Stakeland 2, The Stakelander magnificent it just dropped on netflix and i think fans of the original will be pleased even if it doesn't add many new layers it's such a cool world to spend more time in that i found it to be very satisfying so that is stakeland 2 the stakelander from andy and i had heard that the sequel to this came out i did enjoy the first movie i remember liking stakeland i hadn't heard about the sequel but just recently someone else told me that it not only did it exist but that it was called the Stakelander? The Stakelander, yeah. which is magnificent. It is magnificent. That's the only word for it. Uh, I didn't realize it was on Netflix, so I'm going to add that to my my list right now. Thank you, Andy. Next up, from Matt in West London, we have a recommendation here. I'd like to recommend a fantasy B- uh, excuse me, a fantastic BBC anthology series of darkly comic twisted tales called 
Inside Number Nine. It just completed Series Three with a fourth on the way. Inside Number Nine is created by Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton, half of the team behind the Peerless League of Gentlemen series. Each episode is a 30-minute, completely self-contained story taking place behind a door marked Number Nine. Whether it's a house, a hotel room, a train carriage, a karaoke booth, you have my interest. Uh, it does the job better than most black comedies of both being very funny and at times very scary and unsettling. The nearest, most obvious comparison is a comedic take on Tales of the Unexpected, but it goes to some pretty dark places at times. Like most anthology series, it has its up and ups and downs, but there are way more hits than misses. This is now streaming on Hulu. So that is Inside Number 9. That's a recommendation from Matt in West London. Sounds intriguing. I, I, I might just watch the karaoke episode, though, because that's relevant to my interests. Okay, one from your my list. You gave me number four, and number four on my my list right now is War Machine. The, mm. Speaking of Netflix original movies, which we've talked about this time, this is the one with Brad Pitt, directed by David Michaud. When a proud general is tasked with winning an unpopular war, he takes the challenge head on, not knowing that hubris may be his own worst enemy. And, uh, you know, they made a big deal out of making this movie. It had a pretty big budget. Brad Pitt making a movie for Netflix. David Michaud is a talented director. He's made some acclaimed movies. And this movie, you know, it went off like a fart in church. It just, it just died a death. I know very few people who saw it at all. Those who saw it had nothing good to say about it. I had added it to my my list when I, you know, when it first made, became available and... I haven't even th- thought about watching it until this came up here. Have you seen it, Allison? I have seen it. And? The like the thing that you want to talk about after you see it is what Brad Pitt is doing in the movie because he... Meaning his performance? Yeah. Like, he is playing this, like... He is, like... He is in, like, Dr. Strangelove. Okay. Like, and everyone else is in a more realistic world. Mm. And he is this, like, cartoon character, basically. I see. Yeah. All right. Probably not going to watch it. All right, Allison, are you ready to give us your picks? I'm ready. All right, let's start with three new releases. All right, new to Netflix is I Called Him Morgan, a recent documentary written and directed by Casper Collin about jazz trumpeter Lee Morgan and his common-law wife Helen, who shot and killed him in 1972 when he was just 33 years old. I don't know anything about jazz. I had no idea who Lee Morgan was. Um, While this film certainly filled me in on that, the reason I found it so compelling is that it is as much about Helen, and it is structured around this interview she gave years later after she'd served time and been released and moved home to North Carolina just before her death. That interview is really something. So uh, that's I Called Him Morgan. It is on Netflix. Available on Amazon is Santa Sangre. Alejandro Hodorowski is, uh, he has a new film in theaters, Endless Poetry. Endless Poetry. Uh, so what better time to revisit some of his past work, mm. like his hallucinatory 1989 horror film about a circus and a cult and an elephant funeral and an asylum and possessed hands. Um, so that is available on Amazon. Also available on Amazon is Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe a documentary in which Werner Herzog eats his shoe. Uh, that's after a bet he made, allegedly, this is at some point being called into question, oh. with Errol Morris, uh, where he, he said that if Errol Morris ever completed his film Gates of Heaven, right. Werner Herzog would eat his shoe. And so he did on stage in Berkeley after cooking his shoes 
very fancily at Chez Panisse with the help of Alice Waters. Uh, Les Blank directed this doc short, and it is now streaming on Amazon. It was not a significant bullet <laughs> or shoe. All right, how about two streaming recommendations? Oh, first up, we have one from Miles in Toronto, who writes, I'd like to recommend the Luca Guadagnino film, A Bigger Splash, from 2016, which is currently streaming on Netflix, at least in Canada, anyway. This is a drama film set on an island off of Sicily, and it stars Tilda Swinton, Rafe Fiennes, and Dakota Johnson. After hearing of the Rafe Fiennes-led film, uh, The Prince of Egypt, recommended on the show recently, this is from a while ago, so it was probably not that recently, uh, I look for other Fiennes films, and uh, came across this one. His performance as an aging ex-lover and record producer to rock star Tilda Swinton is unlike any I've ever seen him in. Worth the price of admission for any of his drunken uh, performances of Rolling Stone songs throughout the movie. Also, Tilda is playing a character who has lost her voice, who she is communicating in looks and whispers. The movie is a slow burn, and I really enjoyed it. Beautiful setting and performances. Thank you for that, Miles. I really like that film. Also, you didn't uh, mention that he has like a big dance number, Ray Fiennes does. It's, it's really something. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have a recommendation from Jacob, who writes... Uh, so I've been listening to the podcast since the inception, as it were, and for the most part, anything, anything poignant has gotten Bra a mention. Sorry, go ahead. Going to mention uh, somewhere along the lines. This week, though, I finished one of the uh, Amazon contributions to streaming TV, Patriots. It's almost as if Wes Anderson uh, used Lewin Davis and took a dive into Fight Club and then made a spy movie. Run on sentences be damned, but I think this is a massive missed opportunity for the average viewer. I predict a solid scoff from Matt, but persevere. <laughs> Matt, it's good. It was good. There you go. All right. And how about one film chosen by my number from your mileage? You mean number 13? 13 on my my list is Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press, which I have actually watched. So I took it off of my mind uh -huh. after this. This is Brian uh, Knappenberger's documentary about how Gawker was brought down by one Terry Bollea, better known as Hulk Hogan. Mm, yeah, brother. And also by billionaire Peter, Peter Thiel. Uh, it's a terrifying documentary uh, and very relevant. So I would, I would say check that out. Nobody Speak. Trials of the Free Press on Netflix. All right. So let's get to our options for our next episode. So here's what, what options they here's are. Here's what happened. You know, we just just a few minutes ago, we mentioned how basically, you know, summer as a thing on a calendar ends in like what? Early, mid September. But for movies, really, the summer is over the first week of August. That's the last week that they put out anything of interest. And apparently that's true of streaming as well, because we're looking ahead to what's coming out. Not a whole lot in August. It's a quiet time right now. It's a now. quiet time. And so, you know, the, you think of the movies that come out at the end of August. It's basically like the stuff that comes out the first week of January. It's a, it's a dump time. So we decided, in that spirit, let's embrace that. And let's pick three options of notorious... Now, no, I don't think most of these movies were actually dumped. No. But they, but they just, could have been. They, they were just not successful, I think. They were wildly unsuccessful yes. i think is the phrase you're looking for yes. we are picking three uh i mean I, I hesitate to say bad but bad movies notorious movies definitely notorious i have no idea what's gonna win i here. have no idea either i'm excited to find out i will be i have seen i guess i've seen two of them and parts of the third i've seen none of them so 
I you have lived a blessed life to this time, but mm. you are about to be subjected to something truly amazing. Yeah, you have well, the first option. I do have the first option. It is Hudson Hawk, which you can find on Crackle and Hulu. This would be the 1991 action comedy starring Bruce Willis as a thief and safecracker who uh, famously, infamously, sings songs yes. along with his uh, his his partner, played by Danny Aiello. Aiello. Um, Aiello. <laughs> whatever along with his partner danny aiello uh they sing them separately it's how they synchronize yes. their their many exploits yes um so they do like swinging on a star and side by side yes and uh written or directed by michael layman and written by daniel waters who wrote heathers and batman returns um but this did not do Heather's... i believe bruce willis had a hand in the story yes. as well this was like a passion project for bruce willis it's the thing he wanted yeah he was like the I, dancing I singing cat sing. burglar yeah. was like the the purest expression that has ever been extruded from bruce willis's soul aside from his multiple albums of course correct but, um, right yeah never seen this it's uh this is the one that i have never made it through that's th- that should tell you something if i've tried to watch it and failed but I shall try again if it is the winner of our Listener's Choice poll. Also stars Andy McDowell, yep. David Caruso, James Frank Coburn. Stallone, James Coburn. <laughs> Frank Stallone! Sandra Bernhard, and Richard E. Grant. It's hard to believe it was a humongous flop. <laughs> Cannot believe it. Well, that's your first option. Hudson Hawk, Crackle, and Hulu. All right. Option number two. Now, this one I have seen. So I know what we're getting into here, and it's nothing good. It is the number 23. The number 23. It will be available on Netflix by the time you're hearing this on August 1st. It is a film du Joel Schumacher. Is that how you pronounce his name? I'm sure it is now. Okay. Uh, Joel Schumacher. It's it's the team that gave us Batman Forever reuniting by popular demand to tell a story about a man played by Jim Carrey who is obsessed with the number 23, um, which I, I get because i mean my birthday is on the number 23 so december 23rd is my birthday so when you saw this movie you were like like, oh my oh my god this is me i am this man everything is connected and i started writing scribbling on my walls and putting yarn up and of course any opportunity to do that really right i will uh i will just read you this excerpt from the uh wikipedia page of the number 23 uh Carey was nominated for a Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Actor for his performance in the film, but he lost to Eddie Murphy for Norbit. <laughs> I don't know why that struck me as funny, but it did. So, yes, this is a it's a it's a bad film. But what well, I mean, I feel like, though, this might have the most options. For, like I, we could do a Jim Carrey episode. Sure. We could do fun. we could do or we could just find the number 23 in a lot of movies. You do that. We could do um, just uh, talk about who makes the best conspiracy wall. Or talk about uh, talk about Joel Schumacher. Sure. Who wouldn't want a whole episode devoted to that? All right. So that's option number two, the number 23, available on Netflix. Number three, option number three, uh, is Wild Wild West, available from Amazon, <laughs> on Amazon. This would be the 1999 steampunk western You really haven't seen this movie? Action comedy. I don't think I've seen the whole thing. I'm sure I've seen parts of it on TV. Yeah. It used to run on TV a lot. Yes. Directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. Um, you know, Will Smith, who it seemed like uh, previously untouchable. Right. This was like <laughs> after Men in Black. Yes. They were like, these guys literally can't make a bad movie. Let's give them $150 billion. Yes. To, to kind of adapt a TV series that no most one people remembered. did not remember. Yep. Make a giant spider in it. Yep. Uh, 
and to have Kenneth Branagh be the bad guy. And, you know, it didn't work out. Even though Will Smith has a a kind of plot song rap. He does. uh, It did not. Despite that, it it still failed. Um, But this could be finally my time to to watch the whole thing. And to just wonder why steampunk western action comedy is not like a, a bigger genre. Well... That's option three, right? Yep, available on Amazon. All right, man. I, I, I can't wait to see what movie the audience wants us to subject ourselves to. I'm going to be honest. I'm just going to vote for I, I'm voting for Hudson Hawk. I That's what it. you want. I want it. You want Hudson Hawk. Yeah, how about you? I mean, the fact that I haven't seen that one makes me want that one, too. Um, but I would I would be fine yeah, with that. Surprise me. I want to know. All right. So which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page. Or now it's really more at the bottom of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, August 7th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch this magnificent film, whichever it is. And then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be out on Tuesday, August 15th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all of the titles we discussed on the episode. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks. Can't wait. Can't wait to see where this goes. <laughs> uh, with more recommendations and the review you pick. And in the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore. Matt is at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Filmspotting SVU. Uh, we announce the winner of each episode's listener's choice on both of those places. And uh, we share more streaming suggestions on different platforms, both from you and from me. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>